Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Romans together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them and they'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying this morning. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We pick things up in verse 24 of Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. And likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heir, which is due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, which he then describes, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, uh, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Let's pray together. Father, again this morning, as we just think about how much sheer information has come into our heart and mind in this last week and all that awaits us in the coming week, whether in private conversations or over the media or what we read or online and checking the news or whatever it might be, so many voices. And Lord, what a blessing it is to be able to uh, come to your word and to come to pure, unadulterated truth, nothing that needs to be qualified nothing that needs to be explained away, but here it is, right from the throne, nothing that will ever disappoint. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to not only study your word this morning, but to be further sanctified and conformed into your image and the image of Jesus as a result. We agree with Jesus' prayer this morning that, and ask that you would sanctify us by your truth, thy word is truth. And we pray for that great and needed work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is establishing the guilt of all mankind before uh, himself and thus deserving of God's uh, righteous judgment. And he establishes in the early chapters of the book of Romans our guilt and our sinfulness uh, before him for the simple fact that if we don't realize that we are guilty of sin and that there's a judgment associated with that sin, then we will not be attentive to 
the offer of salvation and the offer of forgiveness of sins that he offers in uh, the form of the gospel and his son. In chapter 1, Paul focuses specifically on the guilt of the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world before God. And as we've seen here in chapter 1, Paul puts a great emphasis upon the wrath of God, that the wrath of God is a part of God's righteousness. It is a part of his character that he could not be righteous if he ignored sin or condoned sin and if he did not judge sin. And then last week we noted that God's wrath is revealed against, verse 18, all, all ungodliness and uh, unrighteousness of men. Uh, generally defined ungodliness is the, are the sins that we commit against God, unrighteousness are the sins that we commit against other people. But then in verses 19 through 23, Paul also mentioned three very specific uh, things that provoke the wrath of God, and they are the denial of the existence of God, verses 19 and 20, the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness, verse 18, and then idolatry, verses 21 through 23. In the remainder of uh, the chapter, Paul reveals to us the form that uh, the expression of God's wrath takes against these things. And he reveals it in that phrase, you see in verse 24, therefore God gave them up. The phrase is repeated throughout the entire section. Uh, it is uh, again in verse 26, God gave them up. In verse 28, God gave them over. Now, we know that uh, the wrath of God has been manifested in human history in the past. We think about the flood at the time of Noah. We think about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We think about God's judgment even upon his people, the children of Israel, and uh, because of their idolatry, having them been taken into the Babylonian uh, captivity for seven years, and so forth. We're familiar with God's judgment in times past. We also know that the wrath of God is going to pour, be poured out on the world in the future, that following the rapture of the church, there is a seven-year period known as the Great uh, Tribulation where God pours his wrath out upon a world that has rejected his son. But what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 1 in terms of the wrath of God uh, is he's talking about not wrath in terms of the past or not wrath in terms of the future. He, this is talking about God's wrath against sin today. You notice in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. It is in the present tense. It isn't, he's not talking about the wrath of God was revealed or that will be revealed. He's talking about the wrath of God that is presently uh, revealed. And it is revealed in giving people up. And here's what this God gave them up means and how, uh, the, what this looks like in, a, in an individual person's life. When a person is determined, as Paul has already told us, uh, to live a life of ungodliness and un unrighteousness, determined to deny the existence of God, determined to suppress the truth of God's existence in order to escape moral accountability uh, to him, in order to protect their, their practice of some sin that he forbids. 
then God's wrath is manifest against that person in that he simply removes his restraint in their life and he permits them to go their own way. And in doing so, essentially, he hands them over to the power of the sin that they love so much, and then inevitably the bondage that always comes with, with any sin. Being given up by God uh, to engage in the sin that I love so much, and uh, ultimately, unfailingly, ultimately, becoming enslaved to that sin, the possibility of God's wrath being expressed in this way ought to terrify uh, any thinking person, the reality of it. Uh, sometimes someone might say in one form or another, well, you know, uh, practicing that sin, it used to bother me, but it doesn't bother me anymore. I mean, I, I've grown out of... Uh, uh, of my previous Christian convictions on that, and I've grown out of the biblical morality of my childhood or of, of my youth. And when a person says something like that, and a lot of people say that uh, in a lot of different ways, it sounds as if the person has kind of risen to the point of, you know, personal and moral maturity that is beyond the rest of us, that uh, here we sit as Christians and we're simply wasting our lives uh, living under God's morality, under God's definitions of right and wrong, when in fact, uh, and, and this is what we're made to feel like, uh, when in fact God declares that such a person isn't enlightened at all. Uh, they're simply revealing the fact that they are under the wrath of God, that they have been given up. Actually, all of this where God declares that if you want nothing to do with me, you want nothing to do with my morality, you don't want uh, any kind of accountability to me, you want to engage uh, in your sin, and then he uh, releases a person to uh, actually do that with virtually no conviction now in, in, uh, in pursuing all of that. This uh, giving up is, when you look at it, it's just the, the perfect expression of justice because every person then experiences God's wrath to the very degree in which they engage in what he prohibits. Now, the problem, the person who suppresses the truth about God's existence and does so in order to escape God's morality, God's definitions of right and wrong, in order to then protect the practice of some sin in their lives or some idolatry or, uh, or to protect a self-directed life, is that once you reject God's definitions of morality and right and wrong, then you must replace them with a new morality. You have to replace them with new definitions of right and wrong. And so man always does. And he does so whether collectively or whether he does so individually. And the progression of moral degradation that always occurs when man replaces God's definitions of right and wrong with his own, there's always a moral degradation that occurs, and that progression of that moral degradation is what Paul lays out in these verses that are before us this morning. And first he tells us in verses 24 and 25 that he will destigmatize and he will legitimize the practice of heterosexual uh, immorality. 
The second thing that he will always do in verses 26 and 27 is then destigmatize and legitimize the practice of homosexuality. And then third in verses 28 through 31, uh, all hell breaks loose on planet Earth, in, in, in morally speaking. And we'll discuss the reason for that in, in just a few moments. But we take a look at the first step here in this progression. I'm going to suppress the truth uh, of God in unrighteousness. I'm going to throw off his morality. I'm going to deny, uh, deny his definitions of right and wrong. I'm going to reject them. I'm going to replace them uh, with my own. And the first step always in that progression is to destigmatize and legitimize the practice of heterosexual immorality. Any moral uh, revolution against God's morality uh, virtually always begins in this very place. And to study history is to realize it to be uh, true. From ancient times, sexual immorality has always been considered the single great sin of the Gentile world. And it is very hard to argue with that assessment in both concerning the ancient world and as we look at the, and concerning the modern world as well as we would look at the world with open eyes all around us. Those of us, uh, you who are old enough to remember the counterculture revolution that began in the 1960s in the United States, also in the Western world, it was a counterculture revolution that was uh, to be against the establishment. Well, you know that almost immediately it became about uh, the sexual liberation movement. And so a sexual liberation from the traditional uh, values of the nation at that time. A, it was a sexual revolution against biblical uh, codes of behavior in terms of uh, the area of sex. These things were thrown off. And this became the first and primary focus of uh, the revolution. It became about uh, free sex and free love now to express this area of, of human life without being restricted by God or by marriage or his institutions or by virtually any commitment at all. Uh, today, the 1960s revolution is almost never referred to as a counterculture revolution because it got swallowed up in the way that it, all revolutions against God's morality always get swallowed up. It got swallowed up and is known today primarily as the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s. And so it always is. When cultures or individuals want to throw off uh, biblical morality, uh, pushing always to the front of the line, uh, to demand uh, the right to do so is heterosexual immorality. The desire to express oneself sexually without the restrictions of God is there uh, defined and, and revealed in the Scriptures. Paul describes, you notice in verse 25, such events in human history. He doesn't describe this in glowing uh, terms, the way that, uh, you know, some sociologists or, uh, you know, historians do uh, when this kind of thing happens. He doesn't describe it as something that is good for man, that ultimately it leads into true freedom and satisfaction and self-realization and so forth, but he describes it rather as exchanging the truth of God 
God for a lie, uh, for the lie rather. And you notice that he doesn't say exchanging the truth of God for a lie, but it is exchanging the truth of God for the lie. There is some lie that Paul has in mind related to this, and we ask ourselves, what lie is that? And the lie he speaks about it there in verse 25, the lie is the idea that we, the creation, know more than God, the creator, on any given subject, including the proper expression of our sexual desires. I think it's very important to remember, since God is kind of pushed out of any discussion on sexuality uh, virtually uh, today, certainly in, in the secular uh, realms, but it's important to remember that God is the one that created sex. He's not a prude on the issue. Uh, it's not like he's embarrassed by it in any way. God presided over the very first uh, marriage ceremony, and in uniting Adam and Eve, he did so with the words, Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Genesis chapter 1, he also declared to Adam and Eve, we're told, then God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Sex is to be expressed, as God defines it, between a male and a female, uh, and not that alone, but only within the covenant and with the, within the commitment of marriage. It is to be explored and to be enjoyed with someone who loves you and cares about you enough uh, to marry you. And in that context of that kind of a commitment, a commitment made not only to you but also uh, to God, a lifelong commitment, then the sexual relationship becomes a very beautiful expression of love. It is even a sacred experience in that context and, uh, and, and, but only when it is experienced God's way. Otherwise, it becomes what Paul calls it here, to dishonor their bodies among themselves in verse 24. And sex outside of the covenant, outside of the commitment of marriage, it, uh, it, it cheapens and it degrades sex in a way that God never intended. And you look all around uh, us uh, today and see how uh, this sexual revolution, sexual immorality has cheapened how sex is viewed uh, by, by the world uh, around us. And it is now just this activity. It's just this physical thing. Uh, nothing mental, nothing emotional, nothing soulish about it. No uh, uniting uh, of it. It's interesting, I was watching a, 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 something on YouTube, and it was uh, Camille Paglia, who uh, many of you may understand was one of the uh, leading kind of uh, people in terms of advancing uh, the uh, 
feminine kind of revolution and the sexual revolution. And she's hardly a Christian at all. But uh, she was talking recently and has become a voice uh, for sanity in this area, amazingly enough, as she's grown, grown older, but in the whole uh, women's movement and all. And, she, and I heard her lamenting uh, that what she's so advanced in the 60s now in terms of free love and free sex and as an expression of feminism and all has produced now uh, the hooking up uh, a, a culture of today and, and doesn't like it at all. She doesn't like what she played a major part in beginning to unleash. Even she's appalled by what sex has turned into in, in subsequent generations. She realizes that even she and the people that believed what she did, hardly from a godly vantage point, uh, how they lost control of this and, and how cheap and tawdry sex has become uh, within, our, within our, our culture. And instead of, as the Bible teaches, of viewing it as something that's sacred, something that's holy, it's beautiful as it's expressed and as a part of a marriage. A beautiful uh, gift from God has been taken uh, into the gutter. I could spend an hour or two reading the statistics to you on all of this kind of thing, uh, but there's no need to. You're aware of this yourself, and, and uh, we have to move on. I think it's just sufficient what I've said so far uh, for us just to notice how far along we are in our own culture in this progression toward moral anarchy. We are well into and well past step number one uh, in that progression. Step number two is described in verses 26 and 27, and the second step again in this progression of, of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, throwing off God's morality, God's definitions of right and wrong, replacing them with our own definitions. The second step always is to de-stigmatize de and to legitimize the practice of homosexuality. And Paul very clearly describes lesbianism in verse 26 and male homosexuality in verse 27. Uh, the practice of homosexuality is called a sin by God from one end of the Bible uh, to the other. It is always condemned and always condemned in strong terms, and just as Paul does uh, here. But what the practicing homosexual needs to stop and to recognize that God has already in the passage, before he ever comes to uh, uh, you know, condemn uh, homosexuality and those sexual practices, he's already condemned in very strong language uh, heterosexual sexual immorality. Uh, it is only as, as the one uh, kind of wall falls down in terms of the heterosexual world demanding their sexual freedom in violation of all of God's commandments uh, that then allows the uh, homosexual uh, uh, community to come in right behind and demand its rights too. But to be honest, as you look at it, God condemns heterosexual immorality in very strong terms before he ever comes uh, to condemn them in equally strong terms in terms of uh, homosexual uh, sex. And to recognize that is important. I think that so often the homosexual feels as if they've been uh, put on uh, unduly 
And simply because there was a fight in, in terms of the culture wars within our country against, um, uh, you know, the new morality, the new sexual revolution, uh, contrary to what God's word teaches on that in terms of heterosexuals, and that battle and that fight went on. But the homosexual community was not in the middle of that fight. That fight went on within our culture and has been largely lost. So then the next fight came to the, in the realm of homosexuality and the legitimizing of that in terms of sexual uh, expression and all. And the battle has been a fierce one, but it's the most recent one. The other one has already been lost, so it's a, diff- it's a distant memory. So the homosexual community or the homosexual individual looks like, says, looks like, well, God is hammering me worse than the heterosexual. Uh, God doesn't, he dislikes me more than the heterosexual involved in immorality. And it's to completely misunderstand the subject. And, and it, it does harm for a, a homosexual to understand the mind of God and all of this. For instance, as God condemns both forms of sin uh, equally, uh, many places we could turn to, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Paul, again, he wrote that letter, and he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. This is all heterosexual sin he's condemning. But then he goes on, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. And then he goes on, just as he does in the passage here, nor thieves, nor adult, uh, covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. It's important to understand that God condemns all sin. Now, there is a sense when you listen to a list of, of Paul condemning sins by the Spirit of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there is a sense in which all sin is equal. It's all the same. Uh, as I've read to you, all sin exposes me to be a sinner. And all sin, in exposing me to be a sinner, it exposes that I have been disqualified for heaven on the basis of my own righteousness. I can never make myself not a sinner. I can never make myself establish a perfect righteousness before God with which to say, on the basis of this, I am due you know, entrance into heaven. It reveals all of us to be sinners and in need of the forgiveness and the salvation that Jesus provides. But it is also important to realize that while there is a sense in which homosexuality is like any other sin, There is also a sense in which it is not. And this is where the homosexual gets that uh, feeling uh, that his or her sexual sin comes under kind of a special scrutiny in the Bible. And in this sense, uh, they are right. And Paul gives the reason for it here in verses 26 and 27 in his uh, repeated use of the words natural and nature. It is, it is because as serious as homo- heterosexual sin is, it is a sin against God's commandments, but it is not a sin against nature. Uh, homosexuality is both sin against God's commandments and it is also sin against nature. As Paul puts it here, 
It is unnatural. And the ramifications of this go way beyond the sexual expression or activities of the homosexual. The implications are far greater than that. So bear with me on this. Paul declares it to be unnatural. And of course, when you look at the human body, both male and female, you see that they've been created for a sexual relationship uh, together. But when you consider the coupling of two men or two women, you realize there's not a natural way. There's not a way provided by nature for a sexual uh, uh, relationship. In heterosexual, uh, heterosexuality, it's clear that that goes there. But in homosexuality, there is no there for that among males, and there's no that for there among females. It is unnatural, and anyone uh, can see it. So even when a homosexual chooses to reject God's word and his assessment of homosexuality as sin, the problem that the homosexual faces in terms of condemnation on this is that nature then rises up and declares that this is not a natural use of the body. There is something wrong with this picture. And the reason that the widespread acceptance of homosexuality has always been a characteristic of a culture or a society that is nearing and progressing toward a moral collapse, the reason that's been true historically is this. Once a culture can convince themselves that this is okay, Uh, in both the face of the witness of God's word and the witness of nature, then what you have is a culture that can convince themselves of anything, that anything is right and that nothing is wrong. And morally for a group of people, that is the beginning of the end. To me, the two great sins that in our culture that speak to me of the fact that we are morally in what the Bible describes as uh, the last days is the widespread acceptance of the sins of abortion and homosexuality. Because once you can convince yourself that those two things are okay in the face of God's Word and the face of nature, and the face of logic, then we have, then as we have within our culture, then there isn't anything that you cannot convince yourself of in the denial of what is right and in the acceptance of what is wrong. That is a step that a culture takes that is a very dangerous one and it makes uh, uh, the world that you live in more dangerous than you can even imagine. Now, let me be uh, careful to make clear that when this, uh, this passage speaks about homosexual sex as being unnatural, it's not condemning the person who's born with same-sex attraction uh, but doesn't act upon that attraction or upon that temptation. It's condemning the doing of that sin. It is the, 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 the expression uh, of that sin. Every single person in the world has uh, some 
kind of sin uh, that, uh, you know, we are attracted to. There's some sin in our lives that we have to say no to in order to live a life that pleases God. The homosexual is not, and if you have same-sex attraction, you are not unusual in that at all. Uh, Everybody uh, faces that in our lives. At the same time, the argument that many homosexuals use to legitimize their lifestyle is that they are born this way. And personally, I don't have any uh, argument with that at all, not at all. I know there's a section uh, of, the, of Christians who look at it and they say, uh, you know, they say, no, nobody's ever born this way. This is something that is purely the result of environment. Uh, they've either been uh, sexually abused younger in life or they've had uh, unhealthy uh, role models of, of male and female relationships in their life or whatever it might be. But it's always environmental. It can never be hereditary. It can be, never be something that uh, you're born uh, with. And, uh, and I look at that, and I've never agreed with that. And if you, if you disagree with me on that issue, uh, that's perfectly fine. The reason I don't agree with it is, is that I understand it completely. And just because that may not be the sin that wants to take me into captivity, uh, I know what it is to be born into the world as a sinner. I know what it is to have very strong attraction to sin, just like everyone else. And nobody had to teach it to me. And it wasn't because I had poor role models in my life or somebody else did it in my life. These attractions and the appeal of these sins were in my life as early as I could uh, want to think about and recognize them in the same way that the homosexual so often says it's true of their life. I don't doubt that at all. I think that so often what some Christians are afraid of is that there will be the discovery of a gay gene. And then the argument will be that a person uh, really has no choice in terms of this thing in their life, this uh, sexual attraction, because now uh, there is a physiological uh, explanation for it rather than an environmental uh, explanation uh, for it. And so that's the concern that some in the body of Christ have had, that the homosexual community will then use that as an excuse for uh, enforcing their right to to do this. It's interesting today that the idea of a a, a, a gay gene is not only does it horrify a certain part of the body of Christ, but it is very alarming to homosexuals. Uh, with the recognition that if there is actually a gay gene, they may not want to know it because what people will then do uh, to gays who are in the womb is the same thing that is being done worldwide to Down syndrome's children, and that is they're being identified in the womb and they're being aborted in order to remove them. This whole thing of whether a person is born with the attraction or not I don't disagree or argue with it uh, at all. Uh, And to me, again, it isn't inconceivable at all that a person would be born with a strong tendency towards same-sex attraction, uh, again, whether they find a gay gene or not. And the reason it's unimportant to me is that the Bible uh, teaches that each of us are born sinners. We are all born with a natural tendency towards sin. 
and we are born with it from the womb. And, that, and fr- what comes from the womb goes all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden. David spoke of the fact that in, my, uh, in sin my, wo- my mother uh, conceived me. And, uh, and so this is something that isn't environment. This is something, this attraction to sin is something that we are all uh, born with. And I have no doubt that some people uh, are born with not only same-sex attraction, but are born with a greater tendency toward anger or toward violence than another person has or toward uh, sinful uh, heterosexual tendencies than another person. I think that some people are born with a greater tendency toward deception or toward uh, lying than other people or some people are born more lazy than other uh, people. People can be born pyromaniacs or whatever we want to add uh, to the list. But at the same time, while we recognize all of that, we can never use a physical, natural tendency to justify sinful behavior because my attraction to whatever sin is never intended to make that sin uh, all right or to make it uh, right. If we're going to excuse wrong behavior uh, based upon fallenness, or based upon natural tendencies that all of us are born with, if we're going to uh, excuse wrong behavior on the basis of I was born this way, then you can't hold anyone responsible. Uh, for their wrongdoing. You'll have to open up the doors of every single prison in the land, every jail in the land, and let the prisoners out who have acted upon the temptations and the tendencies they were born with, associated to their fallenness. Then you can't, uh, cannot have definitions of right or wrong. Everything will have a natural. Attra- everything we have a natural atta- attraction to will become okay, and the result then is moral anarchy, which Paul then describes as the next step in the progression. But before we go there, allow me to address one f- uh, final thing on on the second step of things. As with all sin in sinners, and and I think in terms of sharing the gospel as Christians, uh, with those that have same-sex attraction or those that are active in the homosexual uh, life and homosexual uh, sin, uh, as with all sin in sinners, the importance of sharing with them concerning their need for God's forgiveness and salvation as sinners. And I think, and you don't have to agree with me at all on this, but I think that sometimes the, the whole, the subject of homosexuality uh, today is so supercharged, uh, and, and especially when we're talking about God and we're talking about salvation and, and so, so forth. And I think uh, because Christians in general have not always represented uh, the, the mind of God well in this particular area or the heart of God uh, well to homosexuals, I think that sometimes it's helpful to help them to kind of take their eyes off of the specifics of their sin uh, that they feel such a persecution over and then try another means by which to establish 
their sinfulness in their eyes, and as a result of it, their need for God's forgiveness and salvation, and to do it through some other sin in their lives. For instance, have you ever lied in your life? Have you ever been deceitful? Uh, Have you ever stolen even a quarter from your mother's purse? Have you ever uh, lusted? Have you ever coveted? Take any number of sins that go on in the culture, all of them equally effective for establishing the fact before God that I am a sinner and my sin has separated me from God and I am a sinner in need of separation. You don't always have to do that with a homosexual person using the sin of homosexuality to establish that. It can be established any number of ways and remove the thing that is so inflammatory to them. I'm not saying to minimize the sin, but there are other ways to get them and maybe better ways to get them to see that they're not different than anyone else in this regard when at this time in the discussion within our culture, they feel very different from everyone else in this regard. And sometimes it means just coming from a, a, another angle to help them see, uh, to see that they are a sinner in need of, of God's forgiveness and his salvation. And to realize that the only unforgivable sin in life, it's not homosexuality and it's not any other sin. The only unforgivable sin in life is a lifelong rejection of the salvation that God has provided us in his son and then to die in that condition. As John the Baptist declared of Jesus, he said, he who believes in the son has everlasting life and he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That is the true issue. The issue is not the the individual sin that has taken me bondage into bondage and exposed me as a sinner, the, 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 the great and terrible sin is, is that I will not acknowledge the fact that I am a sinner before God and I will live all of my life uh, rejecting the salvation that is found only in Jesus. That is the issue, not the specific sins that are within our uh, individual lives uh, that expose us as sinners. And then I think it's sharing with anyone, but certainly anyone in homosexuality, to then declare Jesus' unqualified invitation to all sinners. And it happens to be the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, that's all sinners, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever, that's all sinners, would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the reason that this is important, and to get this discussion to Jesus as soon as possible and off of individual sins, once we've come to the realization that we are sinners, is that when a person becomes born again, and then chooses to submit their life to his lordship, then every other issue gets taken care of by the word of God and the the power of that word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an old saying concerning sin and concerning temptation, and it's very true, that it takes a passion to conquer a passion. 
And at the moment of a person's spiritual birth, when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit enters into our life with all of his resources, and the Holy Spirit brings into our lives a passion for God and a love for God that is even greater than our love for our uh, sin and for any sin in life. He brings within us a will to live the life that God wants us to live and then the power to then live that life. That's why no one in this room or within earshot of me should ever look at God's invitation and think, I can't do it. Sin's got too strong of a grip on me. I'll never get freed of it. Uh, I, I, I'm too, uh, just too invested in it. I don't, I, I've tried everything to be free of this, everything but being born again. Everything but having God Almighty come into your life and set you free because that's what he does, whatever the sin might be. Now, the Holy Spirit is bigger than any addiction to sin or love for sin that, that we might have. I quoted you a section of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth earlier. And in light of what we're discussing here in the last couple of minutes, allow me to read the, the section in its entirety from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul did not stop there. He went on speaking to the Christians in that church in Corinth, which was an absolutely sin-filled uh, city. And he said to them, and such were some of you. God saved people in the city of Corinth as he does today out of every one of those sins that Paul had listed. And Paul said, and such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified. And he repeats the word but over and over again because the life that you now have is in counterdistinction to the life of sin that you once lived, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And to that I say, hallelujah, that God is able to break into any life and, and, uh, and save us from uh, the power uh, of sin within our life. Let's uh, continue and close with the third step here very briefly in this uh, progression again to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, throwing off God's morality, God's definitions of right and wrong, attempting to replace those things now with our own uh, definitions, and then ultimately the third step in all of this is moral anarchy and moral collapse. Lawlessness, as he describes it, in verses 28 through 31. And the reason that the whole progression is important, beginning with the heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, and then getting to the end uh, of the list. And as you look at the progression, you can decide for yourself where we are as a country in the progression. I think we're well advanced in the entire uh, threefold progression. But the reason that the whole progression that Paul lays out here is important is because if heterosexuals and homosexuals have decided to throw off any kind of divine prohibition or restraint on the basis of 
uh, of I was born this way, or if it feels good, do it, and, or on the basis of I love my sin more than God, or I want to obey my sin more than God, then no one should then be surprised when an entire line forms behind those two sins in order to then push their particular predilection or bent through the same opening that heterosexual immorality went through and homosexuality, homosexual immorality went through. A whole line of sins. He lines them up and says, well, if you get to do that, and I have a natural bent toward all of these other sins, then I'm going to get in line right behind you, and I'm going to demand the right to uh, exercise any sin that I want to. And when they do, who can deny them when it happens? Because if one group within a society is free to cast off God's morality, God's definitions of right and wrong in order to accommodate their sin, then who can uh, deny everyone else the same right? And who then can have the moral authority to say no to anyone related to any sin? It silences the entire culture in, in, this, in this way. The Old Testament book of Judges, and this kind of thing has been played out in human history over and over and over uh, again. Not only in the secular world, but in the religious world. In the Bible itself, the book of Judges, this 400-year history of, uh, of, the, uh, of the, the Jewish people, the nation of, uh, of, uh, of Israel, and uh, where it's described in a single verse at the end of the book, the whole kind of moral uh, 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 context of, of the book. And it reads in this way, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And once you start to open that door up uh, for one group, you've got to open the door up for the whole group, everybody. And once you do that, then now everything is defined by uh, everybody, uh, what is right in their own eyes, and then doing what is right in their own eyes. And for the children of Israel, uh, the period of the judges was one of the most miserable uh, and, and horrible times in their history. And the cycle is always the same, as, as you could see it in the book of Judges, the cycle of the 400 years. You begin with a people who believe in God's definitions of right and wrong. They believe in his uh, morality, and then they rebel against God's commandments in order to practice the sins that they want to practice. But that's never an, an, a decision that gets to stop right there. Ultimately, uh, the sin, as it always does, it leads to bondage, it leads to misery, and then usually after a period of years, as the children of Israel got tired of that bondage, tired of the misery, they then turned back to God. They cried out to God to deliver them from their condition. God then would say something like this to them, hey, it's good to hear from you again. And he would raise up a judge and deliver them out of uh, the, their decision-making and from their oppressors. And then the nation would obey the Lord for 
a period of time, but then get fat and sassy again spiritually and think they were smarter than God, begin to deliberately disobey his word once again, and the cycle would begin all over again. They did that for 400 years. But it is the cycle of human history apart from uh, God's morality and his definitions of, of right and wrong. Now, where our nation is in this entire cycle, you can decide for yourself. But what the point that I want to make, and I think we're all really well into and camped in, in the third stage of the cycle, but the point that I want to make is that that cycle is immovable. It is immovable. It will always run its course. You never get to stop at stage one without it going to stage two, and you never get it to stop at stage two without going to stage three or step three. The progression is always immovable, and barring a revival or the rapture of the church, it will play out one, two, and three before our very eyes. And the cracks are already showing within the culture. The 23-item list that Paul does of sins here, they're very, very broad. When Paul talks about all of these individual sins, the idea isn't that we would study them individually and, uh, and spend weeks doing that, though it, it, it would be a good use of time. Uh, Paul is just bringing out these sins one after the other, after the other, after the other, and just like a sledgehammer of the sins that will now then demand accommodation on the same moral basis, on the same uh, as the other sins have, have demanded a, a accommodation, and as he lists these sins, one after the other, after the other, after the other, it's intended to communicate that if you choose to reject God's and, and his morality in order to escape his prohibitions concerning sin, then you will end up undermining every aspect of society because he lists every aspect of society in that list. You will undermine the family. You will underline, uh, undermine marriage. You will undermine government. You will undermine governmental authority. You will undermine uh, individual lives. You will not only undermine their spiritual health, but you will undermine their mental health and their emotional health. And, and this, he describes, is where man's attempt to live independent of God's morality, it always leads. And I would say, look at our country and see if it isn't true, and see if all of these sins that we've talked about this morning have not grown in our culture directly proportional to the degree that God's definitions of right and wrong and morality have been rejected by the culture itself. There is a relationship here. There is a correlation to all of this. And all of it, Paul tells us, uh, streams, he says in verse 28, from a debased mind. In other words, from the lives of people and from societies that do not like, in his words, to retain God in their knowledge. Think about this. Think about man, pathetic, small, little dust man, and I include myself at the front of the line in that. Think about us then turning and speaking related to the Creator and speaking to God and getting to such a position of arrogance and pride in our life 
that we do not consider God worthy of even being retained in our mind. What an affront that is to God. And yet we live within a culture in which there's vast segments of our culture and our society that not only believe it concerning themselves, but they teach it to everyone else that we don't have to think about God at all. We don't have to bring him in, uh, into our minds, and uh, we aren't even going to retain even the thought of him in our lives and within the culture, and it's all around us. The final word from verse 32, because it's an important verse, and here you find a very interesting uh, condemnation by Paul. And he said, who concerning, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but they also approve of those who practice them. And here the moral collapse is complete when people know inwardly that these things are wrong, and they do. It's called a conscience. And they know inwardly that these sins are deserving of God's judgment and even death, and they do. It's called a conscience. And yet, not only do they not repent of practicing these sins, but they unite together now to promote these sins and these lifestyles to others. They become evangelists for them. And here we have a condemnation not only of those who commit the sins, but also those who might not commit these sins themselves, but they approve or they, uh, of, or they applaud those who do. The New Testament scholar, Dr. Douglas Moo, he, he puts it perfectly, so I'll read it to you. He said, granted that committing evil is not, in the ultimate sense, worse than doing it, But it is also true that in a certain respect, the person who commits a sin under the influence of strong temptation is less reprehensible than the one who dispassionately agrees with and encourages a sin for which he or she feels no strong attraction to him or herself. And this refers to those who support people in the practice of sexual immorality, whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, as well as the whole long list of sins that are listed there in verses 29 through 31. And we see this kind of enthusiastic uh, approval and this affirmation literally everywhere within the culture. The affirmation of the new sexual revolution and all of these uh, other sins here in the universities and public education, government with all of its protections now upon all of these things. You see it everywhere in the media, which hardly misses an opportunity to speak glowingly of what we've become sexually and the sexual revolution. Virtually all entertainment in the form of movies or books or music, anything like that, continually glamorizing sexual immorality and working so hard to break down any barrier to wrongdoing. And I think that even science is going to need to be careful in this regard, especially in the hands of 
of uh, pure secularists or atheists in, in, the, in the very near future and indeed at the present time as they will inevitably discover physiological explanations for some of these tendencies in people. And then the temptation will be to ascribe therapeutic language to it. Uh, all of it is a means of explaining away sin or explaining away the fact that people are responsible for the choices that they make. But again, if being born this way is a free pass for following every sinful desire in my life as opposed to God's commandments, then you end up with moral anarchy and you end up in a world that not only do you not want to live in, but you can't live in. It cannot survive. All of us are born broken. And the fact that we can trust in Jesus and become a new creation and receive the desire and the power to live a godly life makes every single one of us responsible if we choose to continue in a life of deliberate sin. Doing and not doing but approving are both wrong concerning sin. And that's an important wor word, not just to the world, but to Christians who are called to be salt and light in moments like this in human history. Well, what in the world do you say in the face of this? How in the world does the Bible teacher <laughs> close uh, a Bible teaching like this? That's the dilemma that I faced. You might wonder how he's going to do it. And I don't think there's any better way than going back to chapter 1, verse 16, and reading, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, come this morning and put your faith in Jesus and be forgiven of your sins and then receive the power of God coming into your life and giving you the desire to live the life that God calls you to and the power to then li live that life as well, no matter how strong a grip any particular sin or any half dozen sins might have upon your life. God will set you free and bring you into the glory of what life uh, is intended to be. He's the one that can break this progression and in, when this progression is occurring in our individual lives. And there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who'd love to pray with you this morning to begin that life with God that he so desires to begin in you today. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, thank you for your word. And again, as we began, it, the clarity that is to be found nowhere else, not only in the age in which we live, which is just a, a, a mass of confusion, morally speaking, and righteousness speaking, but here, Lord, in terms of any, any age, and to see ourselves so clearly 
in, in all of sin, to see how clear the alternatives are. We will either live for you. We will either accept your definitions of right and wrong. We will either obey you or we will head into the moral anarchy that we've read about today and that there is nothing in between those two places in your eyes. And we thank you this morning for Jesus who has enormous price to himself, uh, made a way for us, Lord, to leave the defilement, to leave the bondage, to leave the addiction and the horror of the one. And to then, Lord, to become a part of your kingdom and your family. And we praise you this morning, Lord, for that privilege. We pray for every man and woman that stands before you today that hasn't surrendered to you yet today. We pray that something of what we've spoken about today has made sense to them and that they will turn to you under the prompting and the drawing of your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.